Open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I have read to you verses 14 through 21. Verse 14 tells us about Peter standing up under the influence of the Holy Spirit and leading this crowd of people to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't go there immediately because he wants to answer the scorner's correction, accusation, charge that they were drunk and thus the gift of tongues. And so he answers that in verse 15. Then he explains in verses 16 through 18 that the gift of tongues was actually the fulfillment of prophecy by Joel that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. And we understand what that all flesh is, all, all, both sexes, all ages, all stations in life. And it's identified for us in the passage. It's not all flesh in the sense of everything that's got flesh. That would include the animal kingdom. It doesn't mean all men because it was very limited to the Jews when it was poured out because it was a sign for the Jews. Jews required a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. So it was primarily for the Jews. Then in verses 19 and 20, we have a description of changes and cataclysmic events taking place before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And we understand that great and notable day of the Lord to be one prophesied in the Old Testament and one prophesied in the New Testament, and that is the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish people. And this, this event would come before that, because Peter is giving us this in about 30 A.D., and that event took place in about 70 A.D. It did take place in 70 A.D. So that, that's the verses 14 through 21. Now what can we go back and make sure we completely understand? If we get into verses 22 through 24, we may. But I do not want to shortcut the resurrection because I believe it's more important than the destruction of Jerusalem. But this morning, I belabored the point for reasons that you should know. And um, I took a long time on it. And I just want to go back and touch up on some things that might be of help to us. I hope that you understood. And I want our children to know, and especially the young men, this is that is very important. Amen. When Peter, an inspired apostle, says this is that, there's learning to be had from that. And I mentioned about four different groups that run amok here. The Charismatics and Pentecostals, considering them as one group, they run amok because they want that pouring out of the Spirit to be toward them right now. And they claim it that way. Then the Futurists get all excited. They miss this passage because they take that great and notable day of the Lord in verse 20 and make it the second coming of Jesus Christ and the judgment of the universe. And believing in verse 21 is salvation from hellfire to them because it says the word saved and they've never thought of the word saved in any other sense than deliverance from hellfire in John 3.16. Then there are the, those are the futurists. Then there's the Arminians that do the same thing with these passages. The, fut the futurists want to take verse 20 and throw it way out in the future, that great notable day, the Arminians want to turn it into salvation from the lake of fire. Then there's the literalists that want to take the whole thing literally. 
And because these events haven't happened literally, they haven't happened yet. But Peter said, this is that. And those simple words save us from four great big isms to believe the truth of the Bible. And I went through several examples of those. I hope that you young men will remember some of those examples of the prophetic perspective. They're fun to remember. To remember where a New Testament writer uses an Old Testament prophecy in the future tense for an event that's already passed or is happening right then. There's five principal ones that we refer to in the Bible. And they're beautiful. Do you know them? This is one. This is the easiest. This is that. And so though I will pour out of my spirit, we know that it took place then. And so it cuts off all those isms. It cuts off Pentecostalism. It cuts off Arminianism because the salvation in verse 21 isn't from hell. It cuts off futurism because the great notable day in verse 20 is not the final day of the Lord's second coming. It cuts off literalism because there are things here that didn't happen. And yet Peter said they are happening. The great changes in the heavens and the great changes on earth are metaphorical language to describe great changes happening in the spiritual realm, the religious realm. And that's how prophets spoke. So there's a point that we have to go make because I don't want you to forget it. So how did prophets speak? Some of you know the answer. Do all of you know the verses to go to that know the answer? Because half the church or two-thirds of it doesn't know the answer. And the answer is that prophets spoke in similitudes. Do you know where to turn to show someone that? A contemporary of Joel. Hosea, 12, 10. Wonderful. Wonderful. I can sleep a little better tonight. Hosea chapter 12 and verse 10. It's an important verse to remember when you're dealing with passages like this and there's someone arguing from a literal standpoint. C.I. Schofield and that brand of prophetic interpretation of dispensationalism, premillennialism, and pre-tribulationary rapturism, and all that, they're literalists. They're literalists. So when they see the clouds coming, and the clouds departing, and the sun not shining, and the moon turning into blood, all they can think of is literal, and since it hasn't happened, it must be future. And they deny what the Bible says. Hosea chapter 12 and verse 10, I have also spoken by the prophets. God spoke to his people by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. Hosea 12.10. That is a precious verse to remember. If you want a place to write that verse in your Bible, it's next to to the next reference I'm going to give you, and that's Revelation 1.1. So go to Revelation 1.1, and we will have another verse reminding us about using similitudes and symbolic language by prophets. God speaks by his prophets, and he multiplies their ministry by similitudes. A similitude is a long word for simile. He runs like a deer. That's a simile. It's comparison of a man to a deer. 
by the word like. That's a simile. It's a comparison of similarity. And so there's similarities in the symbolism used by the prophets to present a picture. And they like to use cataclysmic language. The heavens departing. Well, now that's pretty serious. The heavens departing, the sun not shining, and the constellations being removed. And all they meant was that some city is going to get overthrown in battle. I'm going to show you in just a minute, because I want you to remember where we go to for an example of it. Revelation 1.1 says it this way. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Next to Revelation 1.1, I would write Hosea 12.10, and next to Hosea 12.10, I would write Revelation 1.1. And you young men, when it comes to prophecy and why we are not literalists, but we see metaphorical, symbolic, spiritualization of words in the Bible, it's, these are two of the verses. There's other places we can go as well, but these are the two big ones. When it says signified, he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, it means that he told John things that were about to start happening in the world by signs. When the Bible isn't using signs, what word does it use? It uses express. The Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times men shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, forbidding to marry. No symbolism there. That's the vow of celibacy. And so it says the Spirit speaketh expressly in that place. But here, it's symbolism. So don't go into Revelation 20 and try to tell me about a thousand-year millennium and, and the devil being bound with a chain. How big was the chain? How deep was the bottomless pit? If it's bottomless, did he fall out the bottom? It's symbolism. It's a thousand. You don't do it in, in Psalm 50 when it says the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Who owns the cattle on hill number 1001? Who owns the cattle on hill 2002? You don't even think about it because you know it is to be understood as a sign. It's signified to you. It's a similitude. When Jesus, when the Lord in the Old Testament is said to be faithful to a thousand generations, does he lose his faithfulness after that? Or is that just symbolic of forever in that particular case? Or a very long time that we're supposed to understand. We remember this. So when we find symbolic language in the Bible, we are not scared by it. We put our emphasis on this is that. Literalists say, well, we're just spiritualizing the Bible away. You're just spiritualizing it away by saying everything is symbolic. Because these events haven't happened. Oh, yes, they did happen because Peter said this is that. And so there's, our, there's, the, there's the issue. Are we going to believe Peter this is that? Or are we going to believe somebody saying it didn't happen because they don't know that the prophets spoke in similitudes and that prophecy is sent by signification or signs? Luke 13. I mean, not Luke. Isaiah 13. Isaiah and Luke aren't even in the same testament. 
Isaiah 13. You, you need to remember Isaiah 13. It's a fun chapter to remember. When I use the word fun, I don't mean it lately. This is exciting things to learn and to remember. You know, a young man at break time told me that he appreciated hearing about Cestius Gallus. He knew about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's heard it in our church. Vespasian brought those legions into Judea and Palestine. Then he replaced Nero, and it was Titus, his son, the prince. And the Bible calls him a prince in Daniel chapter 9 that took those legions and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. But that's not all there is to it. Three and a half years prior to that, Cestius Gallus did exactly what I told you in the first service this morning. And it's very precious to read it because you should have the question, if the Christians were to wait until they saw Jerusalem encompassed with armies, how would they get out? That's a reasonable question to ask. And there's a reasonable answer. It's Cestius Gallus. And the last five to seven verses of Daniel chapter 12 tell us the distance and the duration in time between Cestius Gallus coming and the final overthrow and desolation of Jerusalem. So they knew it was about three and a half years. That's where some obscure terms of 1,290 days. How long is that? Three and a half years. And 1,345 days, 35 days. They're mentioned about different events of the final collapse of the city of Jerusalem. Reading about Cestius Gallus, never before has a minister been able to simply say, Google it. (laughs) What if I was in a time tunnel and I went back and preached in the Great Awakening? Google it. They wouldn't know what we were talking about. But you know, you can type in Cestius Gallus. You can type in the flight to Pella. You know, I heard about Pella windows at break time. The Dutch Reformed, they're in the middle part of our country, named after that event. Pella is not in the Bible. They were just told to escape out of Judea, so you got to go to some other area, and in mountains. And across the Jordan River is a mountainous, mountainous area called Decapolis, which is in the Bible, Deca, referring to ten cities in the mountains across the Jordan. It was called Perea, and it was called Decapolis, and it was called Pella. We don't have Perea or Pella in the Bible, but we have Decapolis in the Bible, identified as the same area. And if you go look up the flight to Pella, it will tell you that Pella is in Perea and Decapolis. That's what it'll tell you. But you can check all these things out, and it is, here I use the word for the third time, fun reading. Because they followed Jesus, and they were saved. He said, save yourselves, Peter did, from this untoward generation, and they saved themselves. This notable, great notable day of the Lord, I showed you from Malachi chapter 3, Malachi chapter 4, from John the Baptist, from Jesus, from Luke, writing Luke's gospel, that it was the destruction of Jerusalem. It would be unprecedented if God ignored war with Rome. After all of the writing in the Bible from the prophets of God warning Israel about Assyria and Babylon, do you know why Jeremiah and Ezekiel are in your Bibles? And much of Isaiah warning about Assyria and warning about Babylon. 
Well, it would be unprecedented to think that the Romans are going to come and do what they did in 70 A.D. How long was it between 70 A.D. and 1948? Can we get about 1,878 years that there wasn't a Jewish nation at all of any kind because of what the Romans did? How long was there not a nation in Israel because of what the Babylonians did? Only 70 years. It was huge. It would be unprecedented and unreasonable to think that that big event happened and it wasn't mentioned in the Bible. But it is mentioned in the Bible. As early as Deuteronomy 28, where it, set, where it describes the slaves, the leftovers, the captives, being sold into Egypt to work in their salt mines and the price falling because the supply was too great for the demand. About 90,000. He had a few to drag through the streets of Rome, and the Arch de Titus is still standing in the city of Rome with pictures of the Jewish temple furniture being carried on shoulders through the city streets of Rome. It still stands as a testimony to 70 AD. This is not some little event. It's because Jewish fables have stolen this from us and taken it away and want everything to be in the future for them where we will be secondary citizens again. But it is our conversions that built again the tabernacle of David Amen. in Acts chapter 15. They take the words there, after this I will, as applying to some future millennium. But James said those words, after this I will, were Amos's words about the council of Jerusalem. We are part of that kingdom. Thank you, blessed God. Amen. Now Isaiah 13. Or soon. There's so many things to say, and I don't want to preach the witness of 70 AD all over again. It is a great witness of the glory and majesty of our King Jesus. Right. What he did to his enemies. Save yourselves. Can we save ourselves from hell? Can we save ourselves in the first phase of salvation? Second phase? Third phase? Fifth phase? Can we save ourselves? Can we save ourselves in the fourth phase? Yes. Paul told Timothy to save himself and those that hear him. But it says save yourselves. But it tells us what from. And it doesn't say the lake of fire. Why can't they understand that? Do you know how many people go to Acts 2.38? Do you know how important Acts 2.38 is to Pentecostalism? How important it is to the church of Christ? to be baptized for the remission of sins. They go to Acts 2.38, but they don't know Acts 2.40. With many other words that he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Save yourselves from what? A diabolical, abominable enemy generation of Jesus Christ. They're going to be destroyed, like Malachi, John the Baptist, Jesus told us, save yourselves from them, believe the gospel, repent of your sins, and get out of Jerusalem when the armies start to come. Armies didn't travel fast in those days. There were no drones, no Tomahawk cruise missiles, or anything like that. They had to take ships across the Mediterranean, land at a port, slowly get all their food stores and stuff together, march in their organized columns. It took a while. The Christians got out of Jerusalem. Luke, Isaiah 13, I've called it Luke twice now. It's Isaiah 13. Okay, I want to show you this example again. I've shown it to you before. I'm showing it to you again. 
It's for young men and young women to remember it. This is our example we go to, to show why we can do what we do with Acts 2, because we've got Isaiah 13, and we've got Hosea 12.10 telling us to do it. Hosea 12.10, Revelation 1.1 says, use similitudes and signs. So it's symbolic language. Second, we have examples of it. And here we go. Isaiah 13, verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. Well, that can only be the second coming, right? Because it's called the day of the Lord. Wrong. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. Verse 6. Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Verse 10. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world. This has got to be a worldwide cataclysmic final coming of Jesus Christ and the destruction of all the wicked, because it says I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Verse 13, Therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. So it's called the day of the Lord three times. The constellations, the sun, the moon is all mentioned. The shaking of the heavens and the earth. Cataclysmic natural events to describe cataclysmic political events. In Acts 2, cataclysmic natural events to describe cataclysmic spiritual and religious events and some political events. Isaiah 13, what is it all about? Day of the Lord mentioned three times, the whole world being judged, the stars, the constellations, the sun, the moon, all being altered. The first four words tell you exactly what it is. And that's really all you need. But I'll give you more. The first four words of the chapter, the burden of Babylon. This is God's judgment on Babylon. That's what the whole chapter is about. There is nothing in here about the second coming of Jesus Christ. There is nothing in here about the day of judgment. There are not double, triple, quadruple interpretations to be made. This is the burden of Babylon. It's not the burden of America. It's not the burden of NATO. It's the burden of Babylon. Then look at verse 17. How is it going to happen? Behold. The Lord explains how all this is going to happen. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. The Medes. Who are they? Of the Medes and the Persians. The two nations that came together to overthrow Babylon. I will stir up the Medes against them. Verse 19. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, and it was a glorious kingdom, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited. And it's a waste place today in Iraq. And one Saddam Hussein tried to rebuild it, but never got to do that, did he? Because God promised that it wouldn't happen. There's Isaiah 13. Sun, moon, constellations, earth being shaken, all of it to describe a city in the earth being overthrown. Remember Isaiah 13, young men and women that want to remember something about the Word of God. Where there's prophetic language in the New Testament, like Acts 2, you could put Isaiah 13 in there to know where to go if you don't have a good memory or if you don't get to use it very often. 
That is why by reason of use we have our senses exercised to discern good and evil. We want to talk about it. We want to remember it. You want to read the blue book every five or ten years. The blue book on prophecy that we give away and sell. Lord, help us. There's a great example. You know Acts 2.40. So when we're looking at Acts 2.14 through 21, and verse 21 has the word saved in it, and if we're going to be loyal to context, the context of the saved in verse 21 has got to be the great and notable day of verse 20, which by context is something that's going to imminently happen because Peter says this is that. And these things will come to pass before this great notable day. Well, those things happen in the next few years, and he wasn't talking about something 2,000 years away. It was the destruction of Jerusalem. And then verse 40 helps us. So beside verse 21 where it says saved, you can put Acts 2.40. Beside Acts 2.40 where it says save yourself, put Acts 2.21. Just to help you. In verse, 20, in verse 40, it says, from this untoward generation. When you start down through the Gospel of Matthew, did John mention that generation? Matthew 3, 7. O generation of vipers. How about ele- chapter 11 and verse 16? Matthew eleven sixteen. Whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is likened to children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows. Matthew 12 And verse 34, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? There are so many ways to tie in that what is in Acts 2 is 70 A.D., the destruction of Jerusalem, and they would be saved if they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who would pour out His Spirit and bring great signs and wonders to pass. Salvation was offered, and I've explained to you how it occurred. Jesus, the second Adam, secured eternal life. The salvation in verse 21, the salvation in 40 is contingent upon their obedience. It's a different salvation. It's a very practical salvation, a salvation from the Romans. There's many such practical salvations in the Bible. And you should remember them as well. The facts of Jerusalem's ruin in 70 AD help our understanding of it. And I explained that to you already. And the historians that write about it are are pleasant to read. They're fun to read. Josephus wrote, who was an eyewitness of the whole thing, many of the most eminent Jews left the city after Cestius withdrew. Those are his words. Many of the most eminent. Who would those have been? The Christians. The eminent men. Men who conducted themselves wisely in that city left and left it to evil, wicked factions that killed each other. I told you about the place they went. You know, and how Jesus shortened the siege of Jerusalem because he said, except those days should be shortened, even the elect wouldn't survive, but he shortened them for the elect's sake. And there's a clause in Joel that is not mentioned by Hebrew, I mean by Peter, in Acts chapter 2, but I want to read to you the last clause. Here's how Joel worded what is Acts 2.21, where Peter said, Whosoever believeth shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. As the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Ah, in the remnant 
whom the Lord shall call. What did Jesus describe that remnant as? His elect. And for his elect's sake, he would shorten the siege of Jerusalem. And Joel called it the remnant whom the Lord shall call. If you're called by the Lord, you're his elect. If you're a remnant, you're a, a chosen group. And that chosen group was saved. There's so many other references that we could turn to about the generation. Okay, back to Acts chapter 2. And let's look at those verses there. Acts chapter 2. You know, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you had Jesus' ministry. Over the next 40 years, Matthew wrote Matthew. Mark wrote Mark. Luke wrote Luke. And John wrote John. Over these next few years, you got to read the teaching of Jesus. You got to hear it by the apostles because Jesus had promised the apostles, I will bring to your remembrance everything that I taught you. Did he say that in John 14 through 16? He said that to the apostles. I wish he said that to me. I wish he said that to you. We wouldn't have to preach. We could just sing every Sunday because he would bring to our remembrance everything that he taught us. He did that for the apostles. So the apostles taught them what Jesus had said. There won't be two stones left together in this temple. It'll be leveled to the ground. It's going to be besieged by armies. Get out. Hide in the mountains. Get out of Judea. Flee to the mountains. Trust that you have nothing that hinders you. Someone asked me at break time, why did Jesus say not to come down from the housetop and get the things in your house? That is hyperbole, not to waste time. They already knew the dated time. They already knew there weren't legions to surround the city in Jerusalem. You, you would know when the legions landed at the coast and started making their way to Jerusalem. That was hyperbole by Jesus. You should understand that. If you're up on the housetop taking a siesta and all of a sudden the armies come while you're taking your 30-minute power nap, don't get anything in the house, just run away naked. That's not what Jesus meant. It was hyperbole. Don't dilly-dally around thinking that you've got to take care of this and take care of that. Get out of town when the time is shown to be dangerous. And so they were. I hope... You say, I just accused the Lord Jesus Christ of hyperbole. Well, he said it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. Right. How did Joseph of Arimathea make it into the book of life? Because Jesus said it was impossible. Didn't he? Can you get a camel through the eye of a needle? If you put it in a food processor, you can, but it'll take a while. You're forcing me to be funny. To be crazy. That's what that's hyperbole. Right. Did David his father ever use hyperbole? I make my bed to swim with my tears. What kind of stroke did David's bed use in swimming around his house because of David's tears? The Bible is filled with hyperbole. And so that's an example. That's an answer to a question that was asked, and it was a good question. Okay, verses 19 and 20. But preacher. What do you say about the blood, fire, vapor of smoke, dark sun, and bloody moon? In uh, verses 19 and 20, we have, this is that. We have a great and notable day of the Lord. We have Acts 2.40, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Do you believe that there was a generational sword hanging over the Jews? Yes, there was. It's confirmed before and after Acts 2. 
Look at after Acts 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Just let me remind you that the Apostle Paul and all the apostles knew these things. And it was very important to them to describe them, especially if you lived in Judea. Now, if you lived in Thessalonica, or if you lived in Corinth, across the Mediterranean Sea, and you were Gentiles, the destruction of Jerusalem is not going to greatly affect your life. In fact, you'll only find out about it after it's over. It won't affect you. But to the Jews, it was effective and terrible. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 14. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they please not God, and are contrary to all men. What is Paul saying about his nation? They are an untoward generation. He just didn't use Luke's words by the Holy Spirit. He used the words, contrary to all men. Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. To fill up their sins always. To fill up their sins. To get as much sin as God's going to let them have before he destroys them. Jesus had told them in Matthew 23, Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. Your fathers that I judged, why don't you be like them and fill up your sins? And notice this. For the wrath will come at the second coming upon them to the uttermost. No, it doesn't say that. It says, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. And Paul's writing this about 60 AD or so. The wrath is come. I mean, it's just hanging over that city. There's so many verses we can go to. Do you know about Mark? I mean, Matthew 16, 27. There be some of you standing here that shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Some of you means some would die. Some dying means it didn't happen immediately. It happened about 40 years later. When you're talking to 30-year-old men and up, not all of them are going to survive to 70 AD. Jesus said this. Nobody even understands it. Right. The preterists understand it, but they're wrong. The preterists want every prophecy fulfilled at 70, every prophecy at 70 AD. Back to Acts chapter 2. We establish this is that. We establish the great and notable day. We establish that generation as being the one God's going to judge. We establish that if you'll believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be following his advice, you'll get out of town. You'll get out of Dodge. You'll get out of Jerusalem. And so that's all settled for us. So what do we do with verses 19 and 20? I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Do we get John Hagee's online offer of the blood moons? No. Do we believe that this is talking about the crucifixion and the darkness that happened there? No. That had already happened. These are things that are Peter's saying it's happening right now. Here's a choice that we make. And I'm going to tell you my choice, and I'm also going to tell you the liberality 
of this pulpit. Preacher, what do you say about the blood, fire, vapor of smoke, dark sun, and bloody moon? I say, either Peter was an ignorant liar, or you are an ignorant, scornful reader. Those are the only options, or you take my position. Because if Peter said, this is that, are we going to believe him? If you want to say those events haven't happened, and Peter said they were happening right then, then we've got to make a choice. You are an ignorant, scornful reader of Peter. I'm going to side with Peter. So that's my answer to your question. What do I say about the blood, fire, vapor of smoke, dark sun, and bloody moon? It happened right then. That's what I say. Because Peter said it was happening then. So we go and look up Hosea 12.10. We go and look up Isaiah 13. Why in the world would any Bible reader even consider a literal interpretation of such metaphors in Acts 2? Why would it even cross their mind to make those things literal? Why did God use such words to ruin literalists denying Peter for lack of such historical events? That's what I believe. We've, we've seen it from Isaiah. I mentioned it earlier about Haggai shaking the heavens and the earth. Have you ever called an event earth-shaking? Why does it surprise you that the Lord would use that kind of language? Have you ever said when somebody asked you how many were there there and you said two or three, does the Bible ever say that? Did Jehu ride into Samaria and Jezebel poked her head out of a window and some eunuchs poked their head out and Jehu said, who is on my side? And it said two or three eunuchs looked out. Well, now listen, this is the Holy Ghost inspiration. Did he know whether it was two or was it three? I love the way the Bible's written, just like it's written, because that's the way we talk, because it doesn't matter if there were two or three. And if the Holy Spirit says two or three, I just like the way he wrote the Bible. Amen. And so when he uses language like this and literalists get all worked up, I've never seen, we've never read about the, John Hagee can help you. See, as soon as you go literal, you're in trouble. Why not leave this symbolic? And that's what I do with it. I make it symbolic, and I could turn you to so many passages, and I have 50 references here for symbolic uses of sun, moon, stars, clouds, and so forth in the day of the Lord. Some make blood, fire, and vapor of smoke to be literal because if you were in the city of Jerusalem and Vespasian and Titus were making their rounds through Judea, which is what they did, in destroying the smaller cities and villages of Judea, to punish the Jewish people for what they did and their rebellious spirit before they got to Jerusalem. It took them a couple of years before they threw a siege up against Jerusalem. You would have seen some blood because there was bloodletting going on and you would have seen some smoke and you'd have seen some fire because there were cities and fields burning. I don't have to go there and I don't go there, but I'll let you go there if you feel the need to go there. As long as you know that the great and notable day of the Lord is the destruction of Jerusalem and calling upon the name of the Lord and believing on him and being saved is being saved from Jerusalem's destruction in agreement with chapter 2 and verse 40. I don't care because you're not a heretic. You're just looking at it differently than I am. Some make blood, fire, and vapor of smoke to be the literal desolation of Jerusalem. But here are my reasons why I don't. Number one, it is before the day of 70 A.D., by Acts 2.20, because notice in verse 20, before that great notable day of the Lord, so it's not the bloodletting and the fire and the smoke 
of the destruction of Jerusalem because it's before it. That's one reason. A second reason is it's between spiritual metaphors of 2.18 and 2.20. 2.20 is spiritual. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. That didn't happen, literally. So it's spiritual. And verse 18 is spiritual. I will pour out of my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. My third reason, it is agreeable to the similitudes of the prophets to interpret them symbolically. It's what the Bible tells me to do, so that's why I do it. But if you want to be half spiritual, half metaphorical, and half literal, I don't care. You say, you always care. Nope, I already gave you my terms. The great notable day of the Lord is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And the generation that's being destroyed is the generation that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was the day of Pentecost and this is that. And as long as you still believe this is that, and you believe the right day, if you want to take blood, fire, and vapor of smoke and make it literal destruction of Judea, I don't care. Listen, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 31, it talks about Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven and sending forth his angels with, the mighty, with, with their trumpets and gathering together his elect. It sure sounds like the second coming. Mm -hmm. ah, it sounds so much like the second coming. Not really. I've preached it to you. I understand those verses. I understand all of Matthew 24 to be 70 AD. There is no reason for me to see the second coming in Matthew 24. Matthew 25, second coming. And I use the chapter division. And I follow my Baptist father, John Gill, in that particular division. Every man has to draw a division somewhere. Where does it leave 70 AD and go to the second coming? Or you're a preterist. If you get both Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 being 70 AD, you're a preterist. I see all of Matthew 24, 70 AD. And that language is symbolic language, like the language of Isaiah 13. But we give away a book, and I give, it, I give it away all the time, and we sell this blue book in here about great prophecies of the Bible. It takes verses 29 through 31 and applies them to the second coming. I don't care. Do you know why? Because as long as you know that the abomination of desolation is Roman armies that are going to destroy the city of Jerusalem, and that it came to pass, everything else in there, the great tribulation that was unlike anything the world had ever seen, that that came to pass in that generation, then we're okay. You're not in heresy. Because you know what? We both believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And if you just can't jump the hurdle of those terms of clouds of heaven and Jesus coming in power and great glory, if you can't see that in the destruction of Jerusalem, I'll give you a while to work on it. It's okay. Let's keep giving the book away, even though it disagrees with what's been preached from this pulpit because there's no heresy involved. It's just viewing the interpretation of some words differently and that's what I do right here in this 19th and 20th verses. I see them symbolic of a change, a cataclysmic change in the natural realm to describe a cataclysmic change in the spiritual, religious, and political realms. And just leave it at that. Because once I, I don't want to go down that other road. Once I start trying to take blood, what blood? Where blood? There was blood all everywhere, yes. And fire and vapor of smoke. What was the vapor of smoke like? The sun turned into darkness. How am I going to be literal, then metaphorical? I don't do it. I make it all metaphorical. I jump on Hosea 12.10. I follow the similitudes of the prophets. I don't see any reason to do it. 
we both end up at the same place. And I, maybe there'll be nobody in the church that wants to make them literal. Maybe most of you will want to make it literal. We're at the same place. We know the great notable day of the Lord is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. We know that the generation being judged is the generation that crucified Jesus Christ. And they could save themselves from that untoward generation by believing on Jesus Christ and fleeing the city of Jerusalem, whether it is understood symbolically or literally. We haven't varied except in the interpretation of a few words. And as long as, this has been the rule of this pulpit for as long as I've been in Greenville, if you are able to listen to your pastor preach everything else in the Bible except blood, fire, and vapor of smoke, then we're okay. That's rule one. Rule two, you don't start writing papers and distributing them in the church to get the church turned against the pastor because you believe it's literal blood, fire, and vapor of smoke, okay? As long as we have that, you can still listen to me. And two, you're not sowing discord among brethren. And, and you believe, I've already set my terms. The great notable day of the, I'm going to say it about the eighth time. The great notable day of the Lord's the destruction of Jerusalem. The generation is the generation that killed Jesus. And saving yourselves from this untoward generation is running out of the city of Jerusalem and hiding in the mountains of Pella. Amen. As long as you understand all that and that this is that, it, it started happening right then with the signed gifts of tongues on the apostles. And then it developed into the overthrow of the existing government. What does this kind of language mean? The overthrow of the existing government of the Jewish nation, religious, political, and national in cataclysmic terms, with blood and fire and just destructive mayhem taking place to overthrow that whole system of religion, whole system of politics, and that whole nation was gone. Symbolic words for it. And that is what we needed to cover today in the first sermon. <laughs> I'm not going to cheat on the next subject. Amen. The next subject should light you and me up. This, this, this is good, but the next one's better. Where is the founder of our religion? He is risen. He is reigning, and he is returning. No one else has a founder like that. That is our brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the first fruits of them that slept. Our first Adam. Look what the first Adam did to us. Who's going to die in here next? It might be me. Who's going to die next to give us show and tell? The terribleness of... I'm sorry that I called it show and tell, Charlie. Who's going to show us and tell us because we're going to turn to clay. We're going to turn to dust. It's ugly. It's cold. It's final. It's terrible. That's our first father. Our first Adam. But there's another Adam. The second Adam, the last Adam, the first Adam was made a living soul. The second Adam was made a quickening spirit. He's able to speak life. And he's going to speak life to the entire human race and bring them all out of the graves. But only those that have done good will be brought to the resurrection of life. The resurrection of the dead is huge. The apostles preached it at every opportunity. It's a fundamental of the faith. And that is the resurrection. And we had a young man get up in our pulpit and use the resurrection of the dead to say that he wanted to bury his old man and to rise in a resurrected life, to live in newness of life, and that's what we all ought to do. This is our Lord and our Savior, and we'll get further into Acts 2 next Sunday, and we will trust the Lord for some events that took place today that altered my preaching so that I did not cover as much as I wanted to, that the visitors that we're going to have next Sunday needed to hear what's coming. That's what we'll trust. Amen. We'll trust the Lord, and I hope you'll remember the things that you heard and to rejoice in them. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.